Good morning again. Our sermon text for this morning is Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. So if you have a Bible, if you could turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some Bibles on the table just outside the door. Uh, you should feel free to grab one of those for the service. And uh, you should feel free to, if you don't own a Bible, to take one of those with you. Uh, write your name in the front, take it home, it's yours, and then uh, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Uh, before we read Galatians 5, 13 to 15, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we come to you once again. We come to your Word. Uh, we come to hear from you. Uh, we come to receive from you. We come needy, uh, needing your grace, needing uh, your encouragement, needing your word, needing your rebuke, needing your love, needing your mercy. We pray, Father, that uh, you would feed us what we need this morning through your word. We pray that by your spirit you would uh, give me the words to say and speak through me truth. And we pray that by your spirit you would enable each of us to receive that truth into our hearts pray that you would speak to us uh, where we each need it. Um, Father, be glorified as we read and meditate on and think about your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 5, 13. <clears throat> For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love... Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Does the gospel give us permission to sin? Does the gospel uh, undermine morality? Um, does our freedom in Christ mean that we are free to do wrong? What do you think? Are you free to sin as a Christian? Is that the kind of freedom that we have in Jesus? Well, Paul has been arguing for a little over four chapters now, uh, that Christians, because of Christ, do not have to fulfill God's law in order to be right with God and do not have to perform in order for God to love us, right? God loves us in Christ. He accepts us because of the work of Jesus. Neither do we have to do the Mosaic law once we are right with God. Um, the Mosaic Law was the, the guardian of God's people for a time. That's the word Paul uses, guardian. Uh, the Mosaic Law was the guardian of God's people for a time. It, it preserved and prepared a people for the gospel. Uh, but now that Christ has come, we have the true substance of the law in Christ and by the Spirit. Well, notice then that, that Paul's arguments have all, in one way or another, been against the law. You don't have to fulfill the law to be right with God. Uh, you don't have to do the Mosaic law even after you're right with God. 
And you might imagine what kinds of discussions this brought up after church on Sunday in Galatia. You know, it might have gone something like this. You know, person one says, we're, we're free from the law, right? God loves us. It doesn't matter what we do. Person two, two says, well, but, but if you teach that we're free from the law like that, people are going to start doing all kinds of bad things. And person one says, that's okay, right? We're free in Christ. It doesn't matter anymore. Person two says, you know, I think God wants us to live holy lives. You know, if you kept the Mosaic law, right, these kinds of things wouldn't be happening. Person one says, but it's our freedom in the gospel. We're free from the law. Person two says, but you're actually going against God's law. That can't be good. And on and on and on it goes, right? Back and forth. One side wants to hold on to our freedom in Christ so much that they're afraid to judge anyone or any behavior as outside of Christian norms, right? You wouldn't want to tell anybody they're wrong because they're free in Christ. The other side is so scared of immorality, right, that they want to add all kinds of laws to the gospel in order to protect our holiness. It seems like a battle, right, that can't be won. Back and forth we go. Uh, even in this room, right, uh, there's bound to be some disagreement. Uh, some of you maybe have been waiting through this whole series of Galatians, uh, thinking, Luke, you know, you're going a bit overboard. Uh, you're taking this a little too far. You haven't qualified things the way they need to be qualified. Our freedom maybe isn't quite so free as you make it out to be. And some of you have been on the other side thinking, this is, this is great, right? This is wonderful. Uh, I don't have to worry about rules anymore. I don't have to worry about law anymore. Uh, I don't have to, to think about doing things. I can just know I'm forgiven uh, and live how I want to live and do what I want to do. So we end uh, up with the questions, well, what really is our freedom in Christ? And does the gospel then free us to sin? Um, or to put it differently, right, we, we've been given this freedom in Christ. What is our freedom for anyway? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning as we work through uh, just these three verses. And uh, there's a lot here in these three verses. And believe it or not, we're not going to cover everything just in these three verses. There, there are still going to be questions maybe that you have when we're done. Um, but that's okay. Uh, we're going to simply work through uh, the text this morning, and you can see the outline. It's on the back of your bulletin. There are four points. We're going to talk about the content of gospel freedom, the misuse of gospel freedom, the purpose of gospel freedom, and the power of gospel freedom. So first, the content. Uh, verse 13, uh, the first sentence says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Of course, the million-dollar question is, uh, what is that freedom that we have in Christ? What does that mean? What does that look like? And, and really, we've been looking at Paul's answer to that question for weeks now. Uh, and I think, though, it can be summed up easily in, in two points. And uh, let me say, this isn't everything the Bible says about gospel freedom, but it's just what Paul has been emphasizing in Galatians. He says at least these two things. First, in Christ... In Jesus, we are free from the condemnation of the law. Uh, so Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8.1, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? No condemnation. The law, the law condemns. That's what law does, right? Law uh, tells us when we have done wrong. But uh, God's law even declares us to be guilty before him. 
but Christ has taken the guilt of his people. Jesus became guilt for us, and he bore that guilt in our place at the cross. Uh, He's our, our substitute, our scapegoat, right? He took the blame for us. And he did that voluntarily because he loved us. It's, it's akin, right? You, you may have thought of this illustration before, right? It's, it's akin to, uh, you know, if you rack up a number of fines and someone else comes along and pays those fines for you. Um, that's a, it's a legitimate illustration. It's not perfect, right? But um, it communicates how your punishment can be paid by someone else. Jesus comes along and he, he pays our punishment for us. He, he, uh, he satisfies our debt. Or uh, think about this way. Think about it this way. When, when two people get married, if one of them is in debt before the marriage, right? <laughs> what happens afterwards? Uh, suddenly, the liability of that debt is laid on the spouse as well. Right? Uh, Jesus, through our union with him, took our liability upon himself and satisfied it. And it's not really, it's not just that he took our guilt, but he gives us his faithfulness. Um, Just as liabilities are shared when you get married, so are riches. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. That is, God sees us as righteous, as right with our Father, not because of our own works, but because of the work or the faithfulness of Jesus. And there are some profound implications of this, right? Uh, If I stand guilt-free and right with God in Jesus, I no longer have to perform, I no longer have to live up to the law in order for God to accept me, in order to be on God's good side. Which means I, I no longer have to be weighed down with guilt when I fail to perform, which we do, right, every day. It also means I no longer have to fear punishment, for failing to perform. Jesus took my punishment on the cross. And so freedom from the law's condemnation also means freedom from the performance treadmill, right? Freedom from guilt and freedom from fear. That's, that's one aspect of our freedom, right? The, the, we're objectively free from the law's condemnation. We're no longer judged guilty before the law. Uh, which leads subjectively right, to a freedom from, from the treadmill, freedom from guilt, freedom from fear. But the second aspect of our freedom in Christ that Paul has been talking about throughout Galatians is freedom from the precepts of the Mosaic law. Right? God gave his people a law in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, and the question comes up in the New Testament, are we bound to that law? And Paul says, no, we are free from the Mosaic law. Uh, We're free from the law's condemnation on the one hand, but we're free from the Mosaic law's guardianship, Paul's word, guardian, uh, free from the law's guardianship on the other. So in in the book of Romans, again, Romans 6.14, Paul says, you are no longer under law, but under grace. And actually the meaning there is that we're no longer under the law of Moses, but we're under the grace found in Christ. We're no longer under the old covenant, but we're under the new the Mosaic Law had an expiration date, right? It's like curfews for teenagers. They're, they're good for a time. Well, teenagers don't think that, but parents think that, right? They're good for a time, but the goal is to shed such laws as those teenagers come to maturity. Our maturity has come through the work of Jesus who fulfills the law fully in our place 
and then pours out the spirit of sonship on us, the spirit of adoption, the spirit of maturity, the spirit of, of coming of age as the people of God. So this means that the particular precepts of the Mosaic law are no longer binding upon God's people. Uh, by extension, we can say and, and have uh, previously, as we've looked at Galatians, that, uh, that no uh, culturally bound rules um, that we might come up with are binding on all God's people in all times and places. Now, some people think that that means that everything is relativized by culture, right? Uh, no, no Mosaic law, no any other law, as if there were no law or no rule that applies to all people everywhere. Well, well, we'll come to this in a minute. We'll talk about this more, but just a preview, right? God does have things to say to people in his word that do apply to all people everywhere uh, and are not bound to, to cultural particularities. <clears throat> that is, that there are moral standards that transcend culture. Well, the content of our gospel freedom is that we're free from the condemnation of the law, so we're free from performance uh, and guilt and fear. We're also free from the particulars of the Mosaic law under the Old Covenant, having come of age as the people of God through the Spirit uh, of Christ. So we have this freedom. What do we do with it? Which brings us to the next point, uh, the misuse of our freedom. Uh, look at verse 13 again. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Uh, maybe, maybe the first thing to notice as we look at this is uh, that this objective freedom that is ours in Christ can actually be misused. We can mishandle it. Uh, Paul doesn't say, uh, if you use your freedom in this way, you're not really a Christian. In fact, if you read through Paul's letters, especially the letters to the Corinthians, uh, you kind of get the idea that most Christians in most churches actually do struggle and misuse their freedom. Seems to be a theme in the letters of the New Testament. Paul is constantly calling them back from the edge, right? Calling them back to Christ. But already this should cause us to pause and think, okay, how, how are we to use our freedom? What does it look like to live in light of our freedom that we have in Jesus? Paul says we're not to use our freedom as an opportunity or as a pretext or as an excuse for sin, as an opportunity or a pretext or an excuse for the flesh. And when Paul talks about the flesh here, he doesn't merely mean our skin and bones, right, our physical bodies, but the word flesh, it's sometimes used in that way. Uh, but other times it's used in a, in a slightly different way, and flesh here has moral implications. Uh, so look down a few verses to verses 19 to 21, uh, where Paul describes the works of the flesh. Right? Some of those works of the flesh have to do with our physical bodies, but some of them don't. Right? Uh, so envy, right? Envy's not physical, it's, it's mental, it's a sin of the mind. Uh, but this, nevertheless, Paul says, is a work of the flesh. For Paul, flesh here means our sinful nature, right? Our sinful nature. Uh, not our nature as God intended it to be, not our nature as God created it to be, but our nature as it now is, fallen, sinful, broken, and rebellious. So the, the flesh, uh, our sinful natures, uh, are, are really all about self and focused on the created order, 
So Paul contrasts flesh uh, with love, which serves one another. That's what he says in the rest of verse 13. The contrast is between living for other people and living for the flesh, living for the self. Martin Luther said that sin curves us in on ourselves. That's the flesh, right? We're curved in on ourselves, focused on me. The flesh pursues its, its own satisfaction, its own completion, its own fulfillment in the things of the world. Jesus actually, uh, Jesus actually calls us to find satisfaction at various points throughout his ministry. But, but Jesus said this. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Right? Uh, Jesus calls us to think about our highest good, but we think about our highest good as something beyond this life, not something within this life. So the, the flesh focuses on satisfying the self in this life, through the created order. What does this world have to offer me? Uh, that may look uh, like you know, what we think of as stereotypical fleshly activities like lust or gluttony and such things. It, it may mean satisfying physical desires and indulging our physical bodies, uh, but the flesh is not limited to those physical kinds of desires. It may mean things like trying to look good in the eyes of others, needing to look good in the eyes of others. It may mean uh, trying to prove myself to prove that I'm good enough, to prove that I'm smart enough, to prove that I'm pretty enough, to prove that I'm whatever. This unrelenting desire to achieve, to attain. Trying to secure my own safety in life, right? A desire for control. An unyielding assertion that I'm free from every authority and I can do as I please. Right? All of these things focused on self and what I can get from this world, what I can do in this world. Pride, reputation, jealousy, autonomy, right? Any sort of radical assertion of self in the world, looking to the self and the world to complete us. It may even mean some very good things outwardly, right? Like seeking to have a nice, quiet family, uh, to, to be able to go home at night to a, a, a nice, warm and cozy house, right? Not bad things. But that may be a pursuit of your flesh, if in the end it's all about you finding your satisfaction in the world and not in God. Right? If God's not in the picture, right, even good things, quiet things, peaceful things can actually be the living out of my flesh. Well, what happens when we allow those desires of the flesh to run us like that? Well, the inevitable is conflict. Uh, Paul says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Right? In the end, this program of living for self inevitably comes into conflict, ends in conflict, comes into conflict with everybody else's program for living for themselves, right? We see this in our homes. We see this in, in the church. You know, what happens in the family? What happens in the church if, if everybody is living for themselves? Sometimes our, our idols mesh together, um, I often joke that Deborah and I get along so well because our idols work together, right? Um, I think they call that codependency, I'm not sure. But, uh, but <clears throat> sometimes your idols mesh together, 
my living for me and, and you living for you can go hand in hand sometimes if we're both on the same page. But inevitably, at some point, right, me living for me and you living for you, it's going to come into conflict. And that's going to cause strife. We're going to bite and devour one another. My living for my flesh, flesh and you for yours is going to cause conflict and, and ultimately destroy that relationship. Hence, uh, James says in the book of James, uh, what causes fights and what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that you, your, your desires are at war within you? Right? There's these fleshly desires within us, at war within us, and that manifests itself in war with those around me. We misuse our freedom when we say, I'm free in Christ to do as I please, and I'm going to do just that. That's going to lead to conflict. When I insist on having uh, life my way, that's going to lead to the destruction of community. Paul says, no, actually, your freedom is for a different purpose than self-indulgence. You're not free so you can live for yourself, right? God didn't leave you so you could live a life of, of indulgence. Okay, so why did God free us? Well, we've looked at the content of gospel freedom and the misuse of it. Let's look at the purpose of it. Once again, verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love, serve one another. Uh, the purpose of our freedom is service. Now, that doesn't seem like freedom to us. Uh, slaves serve, right? Not free men. And in fact, the word Paul uses is the verbal form of the Greek word for slavery. So he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love make yourselves slaves of one another. Here's your freedom. Your freedom is freedom to, to become a slave. Doesn't seem to work for us. Doesn't uh, fit. Uh, in fact, uh, Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 23, he says, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Well, what's he talking about there in 1 Corinthians 7? He's actually talking about literal physical slavery. He's saying, you belong to Christ, right? Don't, don't give up your mind and your body to serve other people, right? Don't give away your will to others. Um, but here Paul says, through love, serve one another. Paul is not here talking about giving up our wills uh, so that we no longer have choices in life. It's not what he's saying. Um, he is talking about voluntarily serving those around you. Right, that the freedom that we have in Jesus is a freedom to actually give up our preferences, give up our wants at times, uh, give up our way, and serve those around us. The freedom we have in Christ is a freedom to put others ahead of ourselves. Using our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh is using our freedom as an opportunity to serve myself. I'm free in Jesus, so I'm going to indulge myself, serve myself, give in to every whim, every desire. But Paul says our freedom is a freedom to serve one another. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why the Christian life actually must be communal. 
Uh, the Christian life cannot be lived to its fullest alone, um, which means you, you've got to let people in. Uh, you've got to seek out community. Um, through love, serve one another. Right? Who, who is your one another? Uh, who, who, what, what is the church body that Paul is calling you to serve? Maybe it's this one. Maybe it's another one. Uh, but Paul is right, talking about the church. He's talking to the church. Serve one another. And yet, of course, the call to serve is universal, right? It applies to, to all of your relationships. Gospel freedom is freedom to serve. Freedom to serve those around me. Well, what does that look like? Right? What does that loving service look like? Uh, it looks like a lot of things, big things, small things. It looks like everything between, you know, giving someone a cup of cold water right, to giving up your life. Jesus talked about both of, those things, both of those things, didn't he? Jesus says giving a cup of cold water to someone because they are his disciple will not go unnoticed by the Father. Right? Such a small gesture will not go unnoticed. But Jesus also said there's no greater, no greater love than this than to lay down your life for a friend. And of course, Jesus, the, Jesus is the model in this, isn't he? Uh, he says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for a friend. And then Jesus lays down his life for us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, Jesus, wanting to impress this, his role as servant on his disciples, uh, spent the night before he died washing his disciples' feet before he went to the cross to bear his disciples' sin. In Philippians 2, we're told Jesus did not grasp after praise and position, but took the form of a servant. In fact, Paul himself constantly refers to himself as a servant. Sometimes he talks about himself as a servant of God or a servant of Christ. But other times, like 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, Though I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all. Right? It's constantly these contrasts in Paul. Like, yes, you're free. You're free to serve. I am free. I've made myself a servant. Our calling to, is to follow Christ and to follow Paul and to serve one another. It's our calling in the church. How do you do that? What does that look like in your own life? How are you a servant? How, are, how have you uh, taken up this mantle, this identity, and sought to serve those around you? Maybe first in your home, right? Husbands, how do you serve your wives? Right? That's the first person you need to be serving. How do you serve your children? How do you serve your neighbors? How do you serve your church? Broadly speaking, right, there, there, are, there are really two ways of serving, two categories, right? Peter talks them, about them in 1 Peter chapter 4. It's a verse that I, I mention often because I think it's really helpful to have these two categories in mind. Um, there are two kinds of service, speaking and serving. That's the way Peter puts it. Two kinds of service, speaking and serving. Uh, he means word and deed, right? Um, serving others through speaking, uh, through our words, often means caring for them spiritually or emotionally or, or uh, uh, relationally. Um, in the church, of course, on one level, the elders are, are to lead in this. Uh, we're called to speak. We're called to teach. And yet, uh, it's really a call to the whole church, right? Many people in the body are gifted in different ways, uh, different aspects of this speaking ministry. So teaching is one way, but it's only one way. 
of encouraging others through our words. So, so look around you. Is there someone who needs encouragement? Kind words, right, to strengthen them in their struggles. Can you give those kind words, right? Can you encourage them? Is there someone who needs counsel, right? All of us at some point need others speaking into our lives, giving us wisdom, giving us guidance, giving us perspective. Sometimes we're just languishing, having no idea what to do in life or where to go. We need other people speaking into our lives, speaking into our hearts. Right? Can you do that? Is there someone who needs rebuke? Right? So uh, do you see a brother or a sister living in sin, needing someone to rescue them from the snares of the devil by rebuking them, calling them back to Jesus? We serve one another, right, when we speak into uh, their lives with grace and with truth and with boldness. Yet we also serve one another through our deeds, through our actions. You know, sometimes this means we, we, we wish we could say something, but we have nothing to say because we, we don't know what counsel to give, right? We don't know how to encourage them, and so we just sit with them, right? This is what Job's counselors did for the first uh, seven days, they did really good for seven days. They sat with him, and then they opened their mouths, and it all went downhill from there. Sometimes that's all we can do, right? We can just sit with people. We just be with them. Sort of manifest God's presence by, by being with other people. Showing them God's love by being with them. Um, in the church, uh, caring for people's physical needs, though, right, typically uh, serving others is caring for their physical needs. Um, in the church, the office of deacon, right, is uh, meant to lead in that, facilitate in that, right? Deacons lead in facilitating uh, caring for people's physical needs. Um, we don't yet have deacons in our church. Uh, you may know that, you may not. Uh, so that will be an important step for us at some point, right, to to elect deacons, people who can lead our body in caring for others' physical needs, right? That's what deacons do. Um, just as elders, right, lead in caring for spiritual needs, deacons lead in caring for physical needs. But again, we're all called to serve, deacon or not deacon, right? Whether you have an, a roller or not, or an office or not, doesn't matter. We're all called to serve one another in this way. Now, if you're going to serve others, right, either in word or in deed, you need to first know them. Right? That, that's an important first step. Uh, service requires knowledge. Uh, in fact, uh, there are two books that um, talk about this, one for word ministry, one for deed ministry, which is really helpful. So Paul Tripp has a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, uh, and it outlines the task of the counselor, but really the counsel were to give one another. And his outline is, uh, how, how, do you, how do you counsel someone? Love, know, speak, do, right? You, you love the person, you know the person, you speak into their life, and then you do. You help them make changes that need to be changed. Um, but the point is, before you speak, before you speak into someone's life, before you say anything, right, you must know them meaningfully. That's one of the problems in the church, you know, especially when it, you know, I mentioned rebuke as one way of, of loving someone through speaking. And most of us are really afraid. We're like, we would, I would never rebuke anybody in the church, right? Well, why wouldn't you do that? It's because you don't know them and they don't know you, right? You, do, you don't have a deep enough relationship, you think, in order for that rebuke to make sense. Well, what's the problem? You, you don't know them, so get to know them, right? We need to know one another first before we can speak meaningfully into one another's lives. Another Paul, Paul Miller, 
has a book called uh, Love Walked Among Us, about loving, learning to love as Jesus loved. And uh, he talks about the fact before we can help someone in need, uh, we must look at them. We must notice them. We must know them, right? Only then can we have real compassion on them. Only then can our help be helpful. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's little more frustrating, there is little that is more frustrating than someone trying to serve you in a way that isn't helpful. Like you're doing this for me, but you know, no, this is, this is actually anti-helpful, stop, right? Um, so how do you know? How do you know what's really helpful? be like sending, you know, phone chargers to, you know, people in some impoverished area where they don't have electricity, you know, like, no, that's a nice thought, but not helpful, right? How do you know what's helpful then? You look, right? You get to know people so you can love them, so you can serve them. Um, in all of these things, speaking, serving, knowing, what are you doing? You're giving of yourself, for the other person. You're giving of your time, you're giving of your talents, you're giving of your money, whatever it is. You're giving of yourself for the good of another person. You're loving them, right? You're serving them. Now, Paul has this amazing comment in verse 14 about this whole thing. He says, uh, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul is, is supporting this idea that we're to love one another. And uh, he supports this idea that we're to love one another by saying love fulfills the law. Now, this should be striking, especially if you've been uh, with us throughout Galatians and thinking about Galatians, thinking about the message of this book. Uh, Paul just spent three chapters explaining that Christians don't have to do the law. But now we are to fulfill it. Uh, only then... Uh, now we're to fill it. What, what is Paul getting at? Right? What, what is he getting at when he says, you don't have to do the law, but you do have to fulfill it? Sounds like double talk. It's not double talk, thankfully, but uh, I, I do think Paul is making a distinction um, between doing the works of the Mosaic law, which he said again and again, you, you, you don't have to fulfill or don't have to do, and fulfilling the law. Um, we're free from the law of Moses. We no longer have to do the works of that law. Uh, but the point of that law in that time and place was, was love. Um, our obligation to love has not been taken away by the work of Christ. We're still called to love. Uh, God doesn't say, I've saved you so you can hate one another. I've saved you so you can be violent. I've saved you so you can destroy one another. No, he saved us so that we can love There is no condemnation when we fail to love in the gospel. That's true, but God still calls us to it. This distinction between doing the works of the Mosaic law and fulfilling the law through love, um, we, we shouldn't see this as a, sort of a broad principle of following the spirit of the law and not the letter. Sometimes that's where people go. Well, it's about the spirit of the law and not the letter of the law. And I get that, but Paul is making a sort of a historical contrast between the Mosaic law, those, those people of God who were under the law of Moses and those who are not because of the work of Christ. Um, sometimes we take that principle about spirit versus letter, we start applying it all over the place. Like, oh, I don't really have to obey that passage, just the spirit of it. I don't have to really listen to those words, just the spirit of it. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying, 
The Mosaic Law was for a time, we're no longer under that, but we still need to fulfill the intent of all of it, which is love. Uh, neither, though, should, we see, should it be seen as an excuse, right, this contrast between the Law of Moses and, and the New Covenant, neither should it, should it be seen as an excuse to ignore the Old Testament altogether, right? The whole Bible talks about the same God, the same problem of sin, and the same Savior, and as God worked out that plan, the Mosaic Law in, a particular, in particular had a temporary and now defunct function, right? Part of which was it spelled out the particular requirements of love in that culture. But we're no longer required to love in that way. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's one law in the Old Testament that uh, you have to build a fence around the roof of your house, right? Can you imagine if, if we all felt like we had to obey that law, how absurd that would be? Like, you build a fence around the roof of your house. Uh, but why did that make sense in that culture? Well, because they had flat roofs that were used, right? People went up on them. People slept on them, right? Um, it was important to have a fence around the roof of your house so no, someone didn't fall off. For most of us, we don't hang out on our roofs, right? Most of us, most of the time, right? So that law is absurd. And yet the point is about loving your neighbor so that when they come up on your property, they're safe. Well, that can still be applied in different ways. But it's the, the, the love behind that law, the intent of that law that is still applicable, still to love our neighbor, still to keep them safe, but we don't, we're not bound to the particularities of the Mosaic Law. We're no longer called to love in that way. We're still called to love. And as we do, we fulfill God's law. We have been freed from the law that we might now fulfill the law. That's the way Paul talks, right? We're freed from the law so that we might now fulfill the law. We've gained freedom that we might become servants. We talked about the content and the misuse and the purpose of our freedom. Let's talk about the power, the power of this freedom. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how you've been hearing all of this. Uh, the call to loving service can sound impossible, can sound oppressive, can sound demeaning make myself a servant, can sound scary, what is this going to look like in my life, uh, it can sound overwhelming, I'm already busy, right, overburdening, downright distasteful, where do we find the power to use our gospel freedom in the way that God intends, right? what's going to get us to that place where we're actually seeking to know and serve and love those around us, we find it, of course, in the gospel itself, and uh, there, there are Almost in every situation, I think this is true. Uh, you can prove me wrong if I'm wrong, but I think this is true. Almost in every situation, there are these four ways of applying the gospel. Um, Paul uh, says uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16 that Scripture is useful, right? Scripture is useful, and that the gospel is useful, and we ought to use it on our own hearts as we struggle with things. And, and uh, here are these four different ways. On the one hand... God's example in the gospel guides us, right? So uh, Jesus loved us, so we are to love. Uh, Jesus served, so we are to serve. Uh, Jesus died, so we are to take up our cross and follow him. Uh, that's true, right? That's good. That's right. We have to see that. Uh, it's true of God as a whole, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are to forgive as God in Christ forgives us, right? We're to forgive others as the Father forgives us. Um, we are being conformed to the image of Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God. Um, but 
in some ways, this is just another law, isn't it? It's another, uh, it's another thing we have to do. It's just another way to talk about the command to love, right? All the law is is an ex- explanation of God's character as that is lived out by us. So as law, right, God's example guiding us, um, as law, it is, as Paul puts it elsewhere, it's weak and worthless in terms of enabling us to actually fulfill the law. Right? Jesus is an, an, an example. That's great, right? Jesus is an example. But Jesus' example cannot enable us to follow Jesus' example in and of itself as an example. Um, thankfully, while Jesus is an example, he is not only an example. He's more than that, right? So second, uh, God's love motivates us. God's love in the gospel motivates us. See, when we see the Father's love in serving us by giving his Son, when we see Jesus' love in serving us by giving himself as a ransom for sin, this love, the love we see in the gospel, ought to melt our hearts and move us. Love begets love, right? We must, we must be loved into loving, right? That's, that's how you become a loving person. You're loved into it. Um, we must be served into serving, right? Jesus comes to serve us first. God loves us first. We love because he first loved us. If, if God's love, though, doesn't stir you inside, um, get to know it better, right? Get to know it better. Uh, I'm not promising that you're gonna be emotionally moved all the time, right? Constantly weeping over the love of God. But I can promise you that you, you are going to be moved. If you are going to be moved, God's love is what's going to do it. Right? God's love is what will change us. So God's example guides us as we seek to serve him. God's love motivates us. And third, God's blessings free us. So, so we sin, right, when we sin, because we're trying to complete ourselves through the world. We're trying to get from the world what only God can give. It's only as God pours out his blessing on us that we are free from seeking those things from the world itself. So give an example, right? The ninth commandment. The ninth commandment uh, is about uh, not bearing false testimony against your neighbor, right? Uh, Not bearing false witness. Uh, It's about not speaking bad about others, not telling stories about those around you. That's what it comes down to in one sense. Uh, The gospel of course, frees us from God's judgment, uh, frees us from the legal penalty of our speaking bad about other people, right? If you're a Christian, if, if you have trusted in Jesus, if, you, if you're united to Christ, you are free from the penalty of speaking bad about other people. You might think, uh, well, that only frees me up to speak badly about other people more often, right? I can do it with impunity, right? This is great. Um, but... Why do you speak badly about other people in the first place? Well, typically, we want to feel good about ourselves by proving that we're right, by proving that we're better. And so I speak badly about this person. I put someone else down so I can boost myself up. But of course, the gospel tells us we don't have to be right. We don't have to be better. Uh, God loves us not because we're right, not because we're better. God loves us because of Jesus. We don't have to be good for God to love us. If I believe that, my need to prove that I'm right, to prove that I'm better, is gone. 
Right? My motive to prove that I'm right, my motive to prove that I'm better is gone. Because I know, I know God loves me regardless of how messy I am, regardless of how messed up I am. And so through the gospel, we're, yeah, we're free from the legal penalty of breaking the ninth commandment, but I'm also free from the motivation to break the ninth commandment. And we could go through all the other uh, of the Ten Commandments and show the exact same thing. The gospel not only frees us from the penalty, but from the motive of, fulfill, of breaking that law. And so God's blessings in Christ, his acceptance, his love, his presence, the promise of the resurrection, the joy that we have in him, the pleasures that are at his right hand forevermore, God's blessings in Christ free me from having to pursue those things in the world. And so they free me up to love others rather than to use them. In the gospel, I realize God is going to care for my needs. God is going to provide for me, which means I am free to care for the needs of others. Fourth, so we saw that uh, God's example guides us, God's love motivates us, God's blessings free us. And fourth, in the gospel, God's power enables us. Ultimately, we cannot follow Jesus' example. We will not be moved by the Father's love. And we will not feel the freedom of Christ's blessings apart from the Holy Spirit's power at work in our hearts. Which is, of course, the very place Paul goes next, if you look a few verses later. And that's where we're going to go next week. Verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's power that enables us to live in light of the gospel. Well, you have been called to freedom. Freedom from condemnation, freedom from performance, freedom from guilt and fear. Do not use that freedom as an opportunity to assert your will and indulge your selfish desires in the world. Rather, through love, serve one another. Following Christ's example, being moved by the Father's love, resting in the gospel's blessings, and trusting and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we know that we've been called to serve, and yet that, that is daunting. It is scary. Um, it's hard. Um, Father, we pray that increasingly by your spirit we would be empowered to live in light of the gospel that we would take up our cross and follow jesus that we would be melted by uh, your love the love of our father that we would so rest in and rejoice in the blessings of the gospel that we wouldn't feel the need to try to complete ourselves uh, through the world and its goods father we pray that you would be glorified in our life as this takes place by your spirit We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.